Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be today as we open this new series uh, entitled One, looking at unity in an age of division. We start in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. I'll set up the series here in a moment, but I want to read the text for us first. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we'll read through verse 28 together. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's Word. You know, in John chapter 17, just before Jesus is betrayed in the garden with, uh, by Judas and the Roman cohort who comes to arrest Him, Jesus prays for His disciples. And that prayer is commonly known in John chapter 17 as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And one of the themes that emerges in that prayer is the unity of God's people. I want you to hear Jesus' own words as He prays for not only His disciples who were there that day, but for who He says everyone who would believe in Him on account of them, which would include you and would include me. In John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. It's amazing what Jesus says. He says it twice in this text that the credibility of the church and the unity of the church go hand in hand. That the believability of the church's witness, that the world would believe that Jesus sent them, that the Father sent him, and that he loves them, he says is bound up in the oneness, the unity of the church. In other words, the external witness of the church is bolstered or shattered, one of the two. It's either built up or it's torn down by the internal harmony and accord and unity within the church. But long before Jesus ever praised these words for every Christian and every church in John 17, David wrote these words in Psalm 133. He says in verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. David writes, he says, the presence of unity and harmony between not only brothers from the same mother, but brothers from different mothers who have the same father, okay? That there is a blessedness about that. That there is an attractiveness and a pleasure that comes through that. There is a joy and a delight and a beauty and a loveliness whenever they 
brothers, he says, dwell together. They live with one another in a harmony and in unity together. In fact, he says it's like an anointing. In fact, that's the language that he uses when he talks about the, the oil, run, like what is the oil running down beards and stuff? Right? The oil running down the beard. The oil in the Old Testament was very symbolic and signified oftentimes the anointing ministry of the Holy Spirit, his anointing that rests upon the high priest. There's an anointing that comes through unity, but also a, a, a sense of refreshing and delight as, as dew falls on a parched land. Because Hermon was in the north of Israel. Zion was in the southern portion of Israel. It was very moist up in the northern portions of Israel and very dry in the southern portions of Israel. And so it would be like there's moisture transported from one place to bring refreshing to a parched land. He said, that's what unity is like. And he says, that is where I have commanded my blessing to endure. There is an anointing, a refreshing, and a blessing in unity that comes in no other way. Now listen, unity, when we talk about unity, I want to say something very clear. Unity is not uniformity. Okay? It means that you can want to go to a different restaurant after church than I do. Right? It's not uniformity. doesn't mean we all have the same pastimes. We all enjoy the same hobbies. That we all think the same way about everything. But what unity involves, while not being uniformity, it means that we center our lives around the same big things together. Right? That we think the same way about the same big things. About who God is and who we are and what He has done and what He is doing and what He will do. And listen, church. Because of this, this call, this prayer of Jesus in John 17, and because of the, the blessing pronounced over brothers who are dwell together in unity in Psalm 133, this is why I believe I believe that God is deeply grieved, not so much by the state of our union. And I have to say this every once in a while, okay? This is because of where we live, okay? And because of what's been handed down to us, to try to disciple us out of some ways of thinking. But listen, America is not God's chosen nation. The U.S. is not a city on a hill from Matthew chapter 5, okay? That's not who we are. We're not the holy nation talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2. That is all reference to the church, to God's people, not to a political national entity, but I believe God's not so deeply grieved by the state of our nation, uh, but by the state of the church in our nation. Listen, a quick glance at the landscape of the church in the U.S. reveals that it is rife with division. The church is divided over secondary doctrinal matters like sign gifts or the particular perspective you'd adopt over the end times. In fact, there's whole denominations that have been formed around one particular end time perspective. More power to you. The church, listen, has long been divided along class and ethnic lines. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said back in the Civil Rights Movement, he said that the Sunday morning, that one hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in our nation. And unfortunately, it holds true in many parts of our nation even to this day. The church is divided over songs and styles of music, what's the appropriate displays of emotion in the context of worship. The church is divided over, most frequently in our day, political principles, political parties, and political personalities. I haven't spoken to anyone whose family has not been affected by the divide in politics within our nation, including many God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christians. 
The church is divided over conspiracy theories, police reform, protests, peaceful protests, riots, and insurrections. Divided over the fault lines of fractured relationships, many of which have fractured over these issues. A quick glance at the landscape shows that the church is rife with division. And as I said in the email earlier this week, if you, did, if you missed it out, I want to say it to you again. I'm persuaded that this is a very serious and present danger to gospel preaching churches in America. This type of splintering which will result in these countless little factions formed around identity groups that all should come secondary to our identity in Christ. In an article entitled Life Together in the Church, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung, he captured my concern well when he writes, I fear that in the months and years ahead, we will see Christians in churches and gospel movements reshuffling their associations based upon a unity not shared in Christological and soteriological truths, but in the sameness of our political and cultural instincts. You see, let me, let me see if I can break it down. What he's saying is this, is that if things continue in their current trajectory, that we run the grave... Listen, grave, God-grieving risk that our identity groups formed around political sensibilities and cultural sensitivities will be the basis of our associations, based, the basis of our shared fellowship together, the basis of which churches we will belong to, the basis of which organizations we will partner with, rather than our shared understanding of Jesus and His salvation. And the big C church... Right? And, and a whole host of little C churches, if not grounded in what binds us together, will become a shattered, fragmented, and factionalized shell of the people Jesus says in John 13 would be marked by their love for one another. How will the world know you're my disciples? Because you love one another. And the same people the Apostle Paul writes to in Ephesians chapter 4, and he admonishes them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So for the next better part of the next two months, we're going to spend some time pressing into this topic of unity, looking at what is it that binds us together, looking at themes in the Scripture and see how they help us cultivate and maintain the kind of unity that Jesus prays for that David said would be a blessing and an anointing on God's people. And the kind of unity that the God Himself shares in the Godhead. Now, I want to warn you about something, that as we pursue this idea of unity and, and, and focusing on what binds us together, listen, there's some things right, that you, you, you can't go around, but you've got to go through. Right? You, can't, you can't just like sweep them under the rug somewhere, but you've got to go through them. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Right? If in marriage counseling, you were to go in and say, listen, we've been married for 30 years, right? And he ran up $40,000 of credit card debt and she cheated twice, but we're not going to talk about that, right? We just want to move forward, <laughs> right? We don't want to talk about what's happened back here 20 years ago. We just want to talk about now, today. We just want to move forward. You think that would cultivate a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage without ever looking at what happened in order to get you into the places where you've now found yourself? Or as parents, Right? If your kids are off the rails, right? You say, well, we're not, we, don't, we don't address that stuff with them. We don't talk to that. that we, we just want them to know that we love them. We accept them for who they are. But we don't ever address the hard conversations with them. Most of you in your marriage and in your parenting would say, that's ridiculous, right? But for whatever reason, when it comes to some of the issues 
that have led us to the place that we are today, we're like, we don't want to talk about that, we just want to move forward. But some things you have to go through, you can't go around. And while the emphasis of the series is going to be on unity, we will have to look at some hard stuff together. Okay? So this morning, what I want us to do is we start together. And by the way, we're partnering on this series with Rockwell Friendship Baptist Church, which is uh, one of the only predominantly African-American Baptist churches in our community. Their pastor, Shannon Thomas. There are two Pastor Shannons in our community. Um, His name is spelled with one N and not two uh, in the middle. Uh, But he's become a friend and a trusted counselor and confidant for me over the last several years. In fact, their church, right, helped fund my salary for almost a year whenever I was fundraising, trying to find folks who would be willing to support what God was doing here. We went through some real lean times. And when I approached him about it, he said, yes, we're in. We want to partner with you on that. He's been a trusted friend. And as soon as when things began to unravel in our nation last summer, I went to him and I said, brother, I'm scared. I'm concerned for the future of the church. Let's do something together. And he was quick to say yes. And so they'll be preaching the same themes and the same text. Their messages will be featured on our website. Ours on theirs. So you can hear from two guys named Shannon anyway. Right? But this morning, we're both starting by taking a look at the image of God in Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible teaches us a number of things about God's image. And so I want to share a few, a few of them with you this morning. The first one is this. There is one singular image. There's one image. See, the image of God is kind of like a watermark on the life of every human being. You know what a watermark is? If you go and you look online, do like a Google image search, okay? And so you, you type in, you know, I don't know, cute puppy, okay? Cute puppy in a Google image search is going to pull up all these pictures of Pomeranians and Retrievers and Labradors, right? All these stock photos. And on each of those stock photos that are being sold by a company or an organization to people who would like to utilize them, they're going to have a watermark in that image, So they're going to have a faint but distinct, right? A faint but distinct image somewhere embedded in that image so you can't just go copy that image and use it for whatever you want to without paying them royalties to be able to use it. Make sense? So there is something embedded in that, pressed into it at the moment of its making so that they retain ownership and rights over it. And that's the image of God in the life of every human being. That God has pressed Himself, His image, into every human being to show His ownership, His right over everyone that He has made. The image of God is a watermark in every human being, and there's only one of them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says this, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, when God takes counsel with Himself in Genesis, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right, takes counsel with Himself, about the creation of mankind. He says, let us make them, let us form them in our image and in our likeness. He doesn't say, let us make these people in this image, and let us make those people in another image, and let us make these other people in some additional image. He says, no, let us make man. And that word man there in the text is an English translation of a Hebrew word, Adam. And Adam means literally this. It means either one particular man, or it means mankind. All human beings. 
So when God says, let us make man in our image, He's saying, let us make every human being, let us make all of mankind in our likeness, in our image. Which means this, church. It's so simple, but it means this. That the image of God is present in every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. On the face of the planet, who has ever lived, is now alive, or ever one day will be born. It's present in every person of every political persuasion. It's present in every class, every ethnicity, and every race. Listen, it's present in every person from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, which is why, as we'll see in a few weeks, God is gathering people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue to populate the new earth because they all bear His image. All of them. Which means, in the present, it is present in every Asian, every Hispanic, every person of African descent, every Pacific Islander, every Arab, and every Anglo. It's present in people who adhere to the different religious faith. Now, let me be very clear. Not all religions worship the same God. That is not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that it's present in the... It is present in a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. Whenever you look into her eyes, the image of God is there. It is present in a Jewish man with a yarmulke. It is present in a young black male wearing a hoodie. And it is present, yes, even in Baptists who grew up in Texas, right, who wear cowboys hats with blue stars on them. It's present in all of them. All of them. Because it's been transmitted to every human being that's ever been born. Pressed into them as a watermark. And the reason we know this is from Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. It says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he followed a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Seth is born of Adam and, well, man and woman, right? That's generally what Adam's name means, man, right? He's born of Adam and Eve, right? He's born of them, and he's born after their image, after their likeness. They were created in the image and likeness of God, and that image of God that was pressed into them at creation is transmitted then to their offspring. Right? Seth is in the image of Adam, who is in the image of God. It's been passed down in every child that has ever been born. And though the image of God is, listen, it is defaced and distorted on account of sin, and we'll see that in a second. Listen, it has not been diluted. What that means is this, is that no matter how far removed we are from that creation event, it's not like the image has gotten less and less and less until it's no longer existent. It hasn't been diluted. It is still present. Still very present in every human being that's ever been made. And there's only one of them. It's one image. So if every human being bears this watermark, this impression, this image of God... And what does that mean? Well, theologians have, listen, there has been no shortage of ink that's been spilled and trees that have been cut down to write about the image of God throughout the history of the church. But theologians particularly in latter days have discussed its functional aspects. And I want to give you three of those this morning. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It's these three R's. Right, I went to seminary, that's what they teach you to do, right? They give you three things to start with the same letter, right? The image of God is rule, relationships, 
and righteousness. Rule, relationships, and righteousness. So to be made in the image of God right, means that there are three things that we possess as capacities as unique to human beings. Our capacity to rule over creation, to develop relational connection, and to reflect the righteousness of God. So let's take a look at those three things briefly. The image of God involves our capacity to rule over creation. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, it says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So when God makes our first parents there in the garden, He gives them dominion over the rest of creation that is now under them. Right? In the same way that man and woman are under God, the rest of creation is under God and under humans. Right? So they would be representatives of God and His rule over all of creation. Right? One of the things that ancient kings did whenever they conquered new lands is they would set up statues of themselves or busts of themselves in those new lands to show just how far the extent of their rule and their ownership went. And so what God is doing is He creates the world. He brings order out of chaos. He tells our first parents, He says, as my representatives, I want you to subdue it. I want you to have dominion over it. So in the same way that God brings order out of chaos in the creation account in Genesis, so also humanity, and many theologians have called this the cultural mandate, to create culture, right? to, bring, to order, systematize things, bring order out of chaos in creation is what God has pressed into human beings, a unique capacity to do that, right? with their rational uh, capacities and skills. The second thing the image of God involves is our capacity to develop relational connection. Now listen, in Genesis chapter 1, there's this divine plural that refers, when he says, let us make them, let us make them in our image, in our likeness, this divine plural that refers to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who are self-existent, equal, distinct, and one, and have forever lived in relationship to each other. And a part of what it means to be created in the image of God is it means that we were created with the capacity to know, love, and serve God, and to know, love, and serve each other. Okay, so we we're able to have enter into relationships with God Himself, our Creator, and with other human beings who are made in His likeness. One theologian, Michael Horton, says it this way. He says, the image of God is not something in us as much as something between us and God. To be an image bearer is to be the sort of creature who can know, serve, love, and self-consciously worship God. But everything worships God. Right? The rocks will cry out. Okay? The trees and the forests of the field and the waves that crash in the ocean, everything is glorifying God, but none of them self-consciously glorifying God in the way that you and I were created to do in relationship to Him. And oftentimes that involves our relationship to others. Third, human beings were created to reflect the righteousness of God as moral beings with more than animal instincts. As moral beings. The New Testament, in fact, would go on to define the image of God as the true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Ephesians 4 as he's writing about the transformation that comes for those who are in Christ and are called Christians. He says in Ephesians 4.22 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, we're created to reflect the righteousness of God. We're created to talk and think and act the way that God talks and thinks and acts. Right? And so to reflect His righteousness, to engage in relationship, and to exercise rule. That's part of what it means to bear the image of God, to have that watermark pressed into our lives. Now the third thing the Scriptures teach us about the image of God is this, is that it was defaced in Adam and it's restored in Jesus. It's defaced in Adam and restored in Jesus. See, when sin entered in the world in Eden, it fundamentally changed not the image itself, but the way that you and I are able to experience that image in ourselves and others. Right? It's been defaced in every respect. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. It's like a beautiful piece of art, like an artist has been commissioned to make this beautiful painting. Right? Okay, so I don't know what your vision of a beautiful painting is. If it's a bunch of circles and squiggly lines, or if it's a sunset on the beach, or if it's you know tropical rainforest, or it's a mom serving tea to her daughter in the afternoon, or whatever your picture of a beautiful in your mind, whatever the most beautiful portrait you can imagine would be, and to have that commissioned by an artist and created, and it's hanging on the wall of your home. And someone one evening breaks in while you were away and they deface that painting, right? They, uh, they vandalize that painting with all kinds of vulgarity written all over it in permanent marker. And mustaches drawn on the mom who's serving tea and cookies to the kids, right? All kinds of stuff is written and drawn to deface that piece of art. That piece of art is still there underneath even though there's graffiti sitting on top. Even though it's been defaced, it has not been erased. It is still present. The capacity to rule is still present. The capacity for relationship is still present. The capacity for reflecting righteousness is still present in every person and every culture. It's still present, even though it has been defaced. And it has been defaced. It's been defaced in the way that we rule. In the way that we subdue and exercise dominion. See, authority... We, as, at elders meeting this past week, we were talking about this. Authority has become a four-letter word within our culture. Okay? But authority is a very good biblical concept and truth. Right? Authority in and of itself is a good thing, but because it's been abused so frequently throughout human history, it's left a bad taste in many people's mouths. It's been abused in families. Right? As fathers have abused mothers or abused their children, or as uncles abuse their nieces and their nephews in ways that should not be spoken of. Authority has been abused in countries. As dictators have risen to power, totalitarian regimes have imposed their view of the world upon people. It has been abused in churches as pastors have embezzled from the flock and fleeced the sheep in so many kinds of ways. It's been abused in all sorts of ways. But one thing that is common to each of those abuses, listen church, is when is this is what happens when those who are bigger, stronger, have more intellectual prowess, more numerous or more powerful, dominate those whose IQ is smaller, those who are weaker, right? Those with who are less numerous with less power. That's the that is 
the common thread between all abuses of authority. Right? When the strong dominate and control the weak. That's been the thread of every abuse of power. And listen, when that happens, I want to tell you something. The image of God is defaced, and here's why. Because that is not reflective of what human life should look like, but more reflective of what animal life does look like. Listen, I've been known, I've been known to watch a few episodes of The Swamp People, okay, on the History Channel. Those are, those are the folks I grew up with. All right, you know, when they put subtitles down on the bottom of the screen because you can't understand what they're saying because their Cajun accent's so thick, right? Those people, all right? That's where I grew up, okay? I've watched a few episodes of that, and some of, one of the things these, these alligator hunters is what they are, okay? They go out and they trap alligators, they catch them, and the way they do that is by hanging pieces of raw meat, as some of you are going to be like, I'm not hungry for lunch after this, raw meat on a stick out in the marsh or out in the swamp, out in the bayous, Right, and they hang a piece of raw meat on a stick. They, dang, they, they pour some kind of mystery juice all over it, right? Stuff that's been fermenting in their garage for like three years. Okay, and they pour that all on top of the stinkiest stuff you can imagine. Then they hang it up and they secure it to a solid stake or a tree. The alligator smells that dripping in the water, comes up and grabs it, takes it in, takes that hook all the way down into their belly, and then they're stuck. They can't, and so they run those lines, they come by, they grab a stick, they pull the line out of the water, and they wrestle that alligator, right? You see him on the deck of the boat, right? Shoot him, shoot him, right? right? You got that whole thing going on. And so somebody's wrestling the alligator, holding the rope, somebody's trying to aim the gun, the pistol at the quarter-sized kill spot on the top of the alligator's head, right? That, <laughs> but every once in a while, every once in a while, they pull that seven, eight, nine-foot alligator out of the water, and there's a big chunk of the tail missing. Right? Or there's one of the arms that's been ripped off the body. Or there's bite marks in the hide, which reduces the value of that particular uh, harvest or that catch. And so they, in their minds, they say, well, there must be an alpha roaming the waters. Right? One of these big 13, 14-foot alligators that is scared of no one and nothing and is willing to exert its power to dominate those smaller alligators insofar as it tries to eat the alligators that have been caught on the fishermen's lines. That's what animal life is like. That's what animal life is like. The strong dominate and eat the weak. They abuse the power and strength that they possess in order to control and in order to consume those weaker than them. That's that is not human life created in the image of God. But so often throughout history, that has been the reality of the way rule, subduing, dominion has been exercised. It's been defaced. Not only has rule been defaced, but relationship has been defaced. Relationships that were a mark of what it means to be human, made in God's image, they can turn toxic and destructive. When sin blinds us to the worth and dignity of all people made in God's image. Listen, C.S. Lewis, back in the 1950s, he wrote an essay entitled The Inner Ring. And in that essay, this is what he writes. He says, the he said, the deepest desire of the human heart is to get inside to positions of privilege, power, and prestige. He says this in the, in the 50s, it is not large lighted rooms or champagne or even scandals about peers and cabinet ministers that, that men want. It's the little 
sacred attic or studio with heads bent together, the fog of smoke and the delicious knowledge that we, we four or five, all huddled beside this stove, we are the people in the know. We are the people with the plans. We are the people with the future. He says, that's, that's the desire of every human heart, to be in, in something. Listen, this desire manifests itself in so many different ways in the context of relationships. You see it from the youngest of age. You see it in middle school. Huh. Right? Who showers and who doesn't. Some of them smell, some of them don't, right? You see it in high school as social engineering goes on because my kids want to be a part of the popular crowd. Every high schooler feels that draw. Every middle schooler feels that draw to some degree. We want to be in. We want to be in the know. We want to be accepted. We want to be received by these people who have what we want. Look at me like I'm crazy, like I'm the only one who ever experienced that. And then it moves into college. And then you got parents in on the mix now too, social engineering for their kids. Because I want my kids in this particular peer group, I want them in this particular peer group, and so I'm going to structure things, I'm going to do things like I'll be the cool parent who buys beer for all the 16-year-olds who come over to my house to drink. Right? Because I want my kids to be in the popular crowd which eventually becomes the parents who pay for their kids to go to the resorts and party at spring break and go with them to rent the rooms. Don't ask me how I know this. I saw it all a couple of weeks ago, right? And they rent the rooms so their kids can party and get plastered all week, right? They want their kids to be in a certain circle with a certain crowd, and so this is, they engineer it socially, right? You move into the adult years, Right, and you're, you're, you're sitting outside and you're sitting in your neighborhood and somebody walks by down the street. This neighbor two doors down goes to this neighbor two doors down. They huddle together on the driveway. They got three or four people talking. You're like, well, what are they talking about? Why didn't they include me? I want to be in the know. I want to be in. It's a desire of every human heart. And then Lewis says, once you're there, other people will have to come to you. Once you're in, other people want to be in too. And so who do they come to to get in? They come to you. Because you got the keys now to let them in. And in order to get in, they have to defer to you, revolve around you, center on you, center their life on you. Right? And this is the story, listen, of every individual, of every microculture, and every macroculture that has ever existed on the face of the planet. The inner ring, listen, that mindset, that mindset of wanting to be in the know and then once you're in the know and once you're in the circle of being able to be the gatekeeper who can let other people in, right? that particular mindset is the essence of sin. That everything and everyone else revolves around me. Everything and everyone revolves around me and that, listen, it, it is the seedbed for every war that has ever been fought on the face of this planet. It was a seedbed for colonization and build, building of empires, for genocides that have taken place on multiple continents over the course of the years, for the transatlantic slave trade and the modern day sex trafficking. It was the seedbed for Jim Crow, the trail of tears, the legislation on abortion, the segregation of races and classes, and on and on and on and on. That inner ring mindset of I want to be in and once I get in, I control who else gets in and everything else revolves around me is the essence of sin. And it has produced all of this shrapnel. 
Because when the relational capacity of human beings made in God's image is defaced, when it devolves into an inner ring, human life and interactions, listen, they are distorted and even disintegrated. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Listen, I want you to think, if every planet in our solar system were to suddenly say, you know what? We know the sun's the biggest object in our solar system, has the most gravitational pull, but we don't want to revolve around the sun anymore. We want the sun to revolve around us. We want the moon and the stars of every other planet to revolve around us. We want to be the center of the solar system. If Mars said that, and Pluto said that, and Ju- is Pluto a planet? I don't know. But Jupiter said that, and Saturn said that, right? And Earth said that. If every planet said that, you know what it would create? Not a solar system, but a sort of cataclysm. And everything, everything as we know it would be disintegrated in a moment. And that is the story of human history with the image of God defaced by sin in our relationships, but also thirdly in our righteousness. Our failure to reflect God's righteousness. So often, our righteousness is reflected in the way that we engage with other people around us. And wherever, listen, I'll say it this way, whenever God is not revered, His image bearers will not be respected. You know why I say that? Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes, poisonous deadly snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths or ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Then in verse 18, Paul puts a capstone on everything that he just said about all these dynamics and human relationships that have gone awry. And this is what he says. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, they do not revere God, so they do not respect each other. And every person and every culture that jettisons a reverence and respect for God as their creator, as their author, ends in a, in, in a cataclysmic explosion as all of this kind of pain and horror plays out in the dynamics of human relationships. Every single one in human history. The text in Romans chapter 3 says this, when a person or people lose sight of God and fix their sight on themselves, they no longer reflect the righteousness of God they were made to reflect. And Kevin DeYoung, in an, in an article, to get real pointed here for a moment, in an article that he wrote in that series of articles, and by the way, Kevin DeYoung is a pastor of a reformed Christian church over in North Carolina, um, part of the Gospel Coalition Council. I highly respect him. His writings have been super helpful to me. His books and articles over the course of the years. But he says this, as he refers back to the image of God in connection to what took place for 350 years in our nation's history and the transatlantic slave trade and what was birthed out of that. He says this, Most Americans knew what the Bible required in loving their neighbor as themselves and in respecting the image of God and other human beings. But instead of letting their theology correct their practice, 
they developed instead they developed perverse ways to conclude that blacks were in fact not their neighbors, not fellow image bearers, and not fully human. For many white Christians, the way to make their Christianity and chattel slavery, property-owned slaves, cohere was to convince themselves that the slave was not the same kind of human being they saw in themselves. That they were made of something more refined. And listen, in every culture that jettisons a high view of God and a reverence for God, they end up with a very low view of their brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God. And they will try to find ways to explain away their behavior rather than conforming their behavior to the teachings of Scripture. They will pervert the teachings of Scripture to fit their practice that they're already engaged in. Because without reverence, for God, there is no respect. That image was defaced full circle in Adam when sin entered the world. But listen, it is restored in Christ. It's restored in Christ. And I want to underscore this last point here. I do. Because I think we've got to understand this. We will, you, you and I, though, though listen, though the, though the Hindu who lives down the street from us is made in the image of God, the Muslim who lives down the street from us, is made in the image of God. The Asian American or African American who lives down the street from us is made in the image of God. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, they will never know what it means to be made in the image of God. They will never know it fully and completely. Because in the New Testament, we're told in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ is the image of God. We may be made in the image of God, but we'll see next week that Christ is the image of God. He is. Right? There are certain things about us that correspond to who God is and how He's made us, but everything about Jesus corresponds to who God is because He is God. He is the image of God. The Gospel is the message about the glory of Christ who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it's by the Spirit of God that we can be transformed from that same image from one, into that same image from one degree of glory to another in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In other words, the image of God is now first and foremost about Jesus. It's restored in Him. Think about how rule is restored in Him. When He says, listen, I know the Gentiles, the way they exercise authority and power, they lord it over, but not so among you. Right? That whoever would be first would be what? Last. The greatest among you would be a servant. Rule is restored in Jesus. Relationship is restored in Jesus. That severed relationship between us and God on account of sin is reconciled now. That we have access to the Father, our Creator, the lover of our souls. He reconciles us to God and He's able to reconcile us to one another as we'll see in the weeks to come. But righteousness is fully reflected in Jesus as He lives a sinless and pure life, dies a sinner's death, unleashes the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within His people that He's carving out for Himself from among every tribe, nation, and tongue to reflect His likeness more fully and progressively day after day after day. The image was defaced in Adam, but is restored in Christ. Now, you're like, okay, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? 
I'm going to close with this application. That if we're going to pursue unity, we're going to cultivate and maintain unity. The unity has already been purchased for us by Jesus. We're going to maintain that and cultivate it in pockets and spheres where it's not. Then listen, we have to learn to honor God by honoring His image. Honor God by honoring His image. I told you earlier that one of the ways that the ancient kings would set their their, their authority over lands that they had conquered was by the creation of statues and busts. And listen, so to some degree, whenever you were in that particular realm of the kingdom, that you were to kneel down to the statue, bow to the statue, kiss the statue, show allegiance to the statue, and in so doing, you were showing allegiance to and commitment to and respect for the king. Now, what I'm not saying is that you need to come down, bow down before me or bow down before anyone else, Okay? But there's a degree of honor that is shown to that image in that portion of the land that is a demonstration of the honor that we have for the great King. And the same is true for you and I. That we honor God by honoring His image bearers. That we revere God by respecting His image bearers. Right? This is why when Jesus says, is asked about the greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12, what does He say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Jesus pull those two things together? Right? Because love for God will natural, should naturally flow into a love for neighbor, and a love for neighbor should be a demonstration of love for God. The two things work together, hand in hand. Which is why in 1 John chapter 4, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. For he, do, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, who is made in the image of God, by the way, cannot love God whom he has not seen. You honor God by honoring his image bearers. How do you honor them? First, you, I'm going to give you five brief ways. First, by seeing the image in them. Seeing the image in them. And a part of that means looking for it. Looking for it because it's in every human being pressed into every soul, every person, and every culture. Some people are going to reflect it in more righteous ways than others. Right? And, some, and some, some cultures demonstrate the image of God in ways that other cultures do not. And some people demonstrate the image of God in rule and relationships and righteousness in ways that other people do not. But in every person, it is there. And so you look for it in every single face that you lay eyes on. Second of all, by learning. By learning. Because it's in every other culture. That what that means is this. is There's not one singular culture on the face of the planet that has cornered the market on what it means to be in the image of God. So that means when you sit down with someone raised in sub-Saharan Africa, or you sit down with someone raised in rural India, or you sit down with someone raised in metropolitan New York, there are certain aspects about those cultures that reflect the image of God that the others do not, and each is able to learn from the other. When was the last time we sat down with someone different than us 
who is made in God's image, and we walked away not thinking about how superior our culture is to theirs, but learning from them ways in which they reflect rule, relationships, and righteousness that we do not. Seeing, learning. Third, grieving. We should grieve every time the image of God is dismissed, distorted, or discarded. Every time. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, the Apostle Paul admonishes us to weep with those who weep. In their sadness, in their sorrow, in their heartache, our hearts ought to break for our brothers and sisters. We ought to lament. You know, lament is an appropriate response. It's a biblical and appropriate response to the defacing of God's image in any of these categories of rule, relationships, or righteousness. And what lament means to do, it means to mourn aloud. Right? Now, you may not put on sackcloth and ashes and rip them, okay? May have been a different cultural day, different cultural expression, but to mourn aloud means that you give your voice to the lamentation. It gives your voice to the lamenting of the sorrow and sadness that's brought about by sin in the lives of those created in God's image no matter what they look like. Every time it's discarded. Every time it's dismissed. Fourth, rejoicing. Rejoicing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, along with weep with those who weep, we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice. To be genuinely happy when the needs of people are met, when their voices are heard. And then fifth, creating. Creating space for people who bear the image of God in your life, but may not look like you, may not have the same background as you, may not have the same interests or hobbies as you, may not have the same political persuasions as you but you carve out space for them in your life. What it is to honor the image. See it. Learn from it in others. Grieve when it's distorted and discarded and dismissed. Rejoice whenever it is acknowledged and create space for those who are different from you in your life. if we're serious about the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for, and if we're serious about the kind of unity that is an anointing and a blessing from God, then we would take serious the honoring of God through the honoring of His image. And some of you may come up to me afterwards and say, I haven't done any of this! I hope not. But I hope that as we work through this together as a church, that God would use it not only to open our own eyes to the seedbed of defaced image of rural relationships and righteousness in our own lives, but I hope, my hope would be that He would also use it as a witness to this world that this is a place for you. In God's church, whether you voted blue or red, whether or not you grew up in the inner city or in the country, whether or not you got tattoos all over your body, 
or not an ounce of ink. Because each and every one is made in God's image. And we want to see each and every one remade in the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your loving kindness in our lives, for your compassion and tenderness, for the fact that you created us with these capacities that sin is so distorted, but that Christ is renewing. Father, I pray for us as we enter into this journey, looking at what is it that binds us together as a people. And foundational to that is the fact that we are all made, all of us, each and every one in your image. So Father, may we treat those who don't look like us, those who don't talk like us, those who don't think like us, May we treat them with respect. May we honor your image in them. So that we, as a a church, might have a unity where there's a glue that binds us together so tightly that we're not fractured by our cultural sensitivities and political sensibilities, but rather, God, we are bound together as one so that our witness in the world would have credibility we would know the blessing and the anointing of your Holy Spirit. And so that we would see men and women and boys and girls in our community and across the globe who are made in your image but are severed from you on account of sin. We would see them reconciled and put back together. even if that means they never vote like we do. Even if that means they have, an, they, ha, they, they have an appreciation for different styles of music, different types of churches. So long as the gospel is preached faithfully, Father, may you bring the church in America to its knees in humility so that we're able to stand before the world in boldness and be believed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.